Hey everybody, welcome to another Bald Movie. Today, we are talking about Inception that was released on July 16th, 2010. This makes it its 10th anniversary. Uh, it also has a distinction of being, I think, the first, if not one of the, one, the top one or two movie reviews we ever did on Bald Move, back when uh, we only had one show called Blue Yonder. Uh, this was on uh, episode 21, The Dreamcast and uh, the Inception Dreamcast, and I will link that in the show notes. In fact, our first idea was we were just going to re-release that into the movie feed, and then we listened to it, and we realized it sounded just terrible. Yeah. The the audio quality is terrible. Uh, it's uh, it, it's it's not necessarily representative of what, of what we are today. And you know what? It had been, I don't know, five or six years since I've seen this movie. Mm-hmm. I was kind of eager to revisit it. Um this, of course, is written and directed by Christopher Nolan. It's scored by Hans Zimmer, uh, like an instant classic, legendary score. And it stars just a ton of famous people. Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't think I need to walk through his filmography. Ken uh, Watanabe, uh, who, of course, has appeared in Godzilla, Letters from Iwo Jima, Memories of Geisha, Batman Begins, The Last Samurai, Joseph Gor- Gordon-Levitt, who got a start on Third Rock from the Sun, also has been in Batman, Dark Knight Rises, Looper, 500 Days of Summer, Marion Cotillier, Cotillar, Cotillar, Cotillar? I'm not I French. I, I don't know. I'm have a, I have a trouble with the French, uh, who also was in the Dark Knight Rises, Contagion, uh, that we just reviewed recently. Ellen Page, uh, star of the various X-Men movies, uh, Juno, Hard Rock, and of course, The Last of Us. Mm-hmm. It's not true. That's a lie. <laughs> uh, common Misconception. Tom Hardy, uh, who I just recently saw in Capone, uh, who is also in Venom, uh, The Revenant, Mad Max, Fury Road, also The Dark Knight Rises, Bronson, Rock and Rolla, Cillian Murphy from Batman Begins, Peaky Blinder, Sunshine, 28 Days Later, Tom Berenger, who starred in Platoon, Sniper, The Substitute, The Big Chill, and finally, My Cocaine. Oh, how could, uh, how could you miss the, the, the link to last week's podcast? He was also in Born on the Fourth of July. Who? Tom Berenger. Tom, oh, you're yeah, right. He was the recruit because he starred in Platoon. Yeah. Um. But yeah, Michael Michael Caine. He's been in everything. The Italian has he job. Ne- has he ever not been a star? Like a, just a massive star. I think we watched the first his first starring role in Zulu yeah. many many years ago as a commissioned podcast. Uh, but he's been in every one of Nolan's films, I believe, with the exception of Memento. Memento. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but everything since, uh, since was the dark Knight? No prestige. He wasn't even in prestige. I think predates mm-hmm. the dark Knight. Um, but yeah. Uh, and children of men, we just, we just saw him in, yeah. uh, about a month ago in children of men. Uh, I like this. I like this movie a lot. This movie really caught my imagination when it first came out. I got way into the theories and, you know, kind of like, uh, the, the different ways to interpret this film. Um, and you can hear all that on the, the Blue Honor 21. I found it held up like a champ. Ten years later, I had just forgotten enough about the movie to make this a really entertaining rewatch, but was familiar enough to kind of like, you know, be anticipating all the things I knew was coming. Uh, how was your how was your rewatch, Jim? Uh, yeah, I, I found that it held up remarkably well. Um, I, I this is maybe only the third time I've seen it. I think I saw it those two times before we reviewed it uh, for the Inception Dreamcast, and then I don't think I've seen it since. Um, certainly not at its entirety. Uh, so coming back to it was like 
Okay, my memory is a little fuzzy on some of these things, but I remember most of it. Um, and I certainly remember, you know, the ending, which I think is what most people remember of this movie, if they remember anything. Because mm. um, that's, you know, the the big question after it came out was, is he in the dream world or is he in reality again? Um, right, right. And, and it seems like there was a lot of supporting evidence for both sides. And so people were arguing furiously on the internet. Uh and yeah, I, I just, I was super impressed with this viewing of it. The, the first two times I was kind of like, <laughs> the first time I was a lot like Robert Fisher is in the movie where Leonardo DiCaprio is just saying a bunch of shit and pushing him along through this plan uh-huh. and he's just kind of going along with it for the ride, right? right. Uh, second time I was more like Ariadne, who's like there to learn the systems and like mm-hmm. figure out how all this works and then sort of get inside of, Ma- uh, sorry, not Miles' head, um, Cobb's head, mm-hmm. and just sort of figure him out. And then this third time, I was really invested in, like, the the emotional and, and construction of the film. Yeah. Um, and I think, because I, I think I've seen, seen it five or six times, because I, I remember watching it three times, um, and I saw it again, like, almost immediately after we recorded a podcast, because there was a couple huh. things I just wanted to nail down, some things you guys were asserting, and some things I got wrong, and I watched it another time for fun, like, a year later when the Blu-ray came out, and kind of indulged in the special features, and then I saw it, like, four or five years ago I watched the Rift Tracks version (laughs) and it actively kind of pissed me off because it's I I have a problem sometimes when I really enjoy a movie especially it's been some a a while and I watch the Rift Tracks thing it's going to be fun I'm like well shit these guys uh, making fun of it are interfering with my enjoyment of the thing Mm -hmm. Um, but since since then I haven't seen it and I I think it helps that like a lot this movie relies on a lot more practical effects than people probably suspect yeah um like there are obviously CGI, like the city of what was it? What, what city in Paris? Or is, is it Paris, it Paris where the city's yeah. folding up on itself? Uh, mm-hmm. That did not literally happen. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, there's a couple stunning effects, like when Ellen Page swings those big mirror panels shut on that, like you know, walkway. Like that's a really cheap effect anyone can do with two mirrors, but mm-hmm. it fucking looks amazing when you got mirrors that good, that big. Uh, on on 35 millimeter um incidentally i guess this is the last film to be nominated for an oscar that was shot on film up until la la land really wow yeah everything since has been digital which you know 2010 it makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. uh like that's like really been adopted but i i yeah i thoroughly enjoyed this this movie is exciting it's thought-provoking um it does an amazingly efficient world building um and you know, as long as you hold, as long as you go along with the two or three things leaps that the movie asks you to kind of invest in its world, it's also pretty airtight. Yeah. Um, there's a few quibbles that I'll have that we can discuss if we if we want to towards the end, but yeah, you know, I, I really enjoy it, and I think that um, I think this is something you and I agree with that Leonardo DiCaprio is just a monster actor. Yeah. Um, and he's particularly good at investing emotion into characters that, you know, like I'm thinking uh, there's, there's two, two scenes that stand out uh, one in shutter Island and one in this, where he reacts to something that is almost unimaginable, like the death Mm -hmm. of your children, the death of your wife in a particular gruesome way. And it's just who the hell knows what that looks like. And then you see Leonardo DiCaprio do it. I'm like, Oh yes, it looks like that. Right. Um, 
you know, because it's not like you really emotionally connect with, uh, you know, you're told things about him that he lost his wife, mm-hmm. that, you know, he hasn't seen his children for a while, that he's on the run. But you don't really emotionally connect it because this 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 movie is a little bit more cerebral than that. You need that scene uh, where he reacts to these tragic events to kind of like, you know, really ground uh, this movie emotionally. And he gets like yeah. five seconds to do it and he crushes it. Yeah, you absolutely need that scene. Um I, I don't want to take much away from Nolan here on the emotional angle of this movie because I think okay there's the, the way that the emotional side and the plot side come together uh, and, and are uh, Christopher Nolan makes like clockwork movies. He's got mm. this impeccably uh, plotted film that is, you know, maybe there's a hole or two, but they're they're nowhere near as big as traditional or typical films. Especially um, one this convoluted, right? Literally. It's an extremely complex uh, plot dealing with multiple timelines and and you know rules that he's established and he works very neatly within. Um, and then that always connects over to the emotional side of it. Like even when I think of things like Inception, or, or sorry, not Inception. Uh, what's the other I in the the other Noel in movie? Uh, Interstellar. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, when I think of movies like Interstellar, he's doing the same things there, right? He's weaving that emotion into an already really intricate, hard to tell story. Um, and the way that like the emotion connects with the plot here just makes so much sense. The scenes of of Maul in, uh, you know, invading the dreams that they're in and trying to mm-hmm. you know sabotage them, and that being you know, Cobb's subconscious and his guilt over Maul and the the way that that all resolves by the end of the film. It's also just perfectly timed, perfectly paced, uh, and so easily understandable. I can't think of any other filmmaker who tries to do things as wild as Christopher Nolan and just makes them so easy to follow. Yeah, like even we were talking about, uh, like he fucks with time or your perception with it. In almost every film... Yeah. Uh, with the exception of the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, even Dunkirk, because you, I remember mm-hmm. you said that like a month or two ago when we were discussing something unrelated, and I'm like, what the fuck? Dunkirk is straightforward. I'm like, no, it's not. It's like three different nested timelines that all come together in the last act. I'm like, oh shit, you're right. And that's yeah. Uh, you know, Inception it, it literally is about that, and like in to some extent the prestige and memento and all that. But but Dunkirk, he just does it for the fuck of it. Like it's <laughs> like it's right. certainly a technique because it. You know, even though these events are taking place at vastly different time uh, scales, he's synchronized them in terms of tension. Yeah. Um, and it's like one of those things where it's like it always it, it is kind of a stunt. And I do kind of think he does it just to challenge himself. He must because I'm sure he, he knows how to tell a conventional story. Look at the Dark Knight trilogy. Right. Um, but it must amuse him or to, to challenge himself in a way. And it's not just for challenge sake. It always, you know, serves... Uh, some part of the plot it either increases the tension mm-hmm. uh, it allow it, it puts you like in the case of Memento which I think still is my favorite movie of his it puts you effortlessly into a very unique mental scape like you know uh, if you haven't seen Memento it's about a man who has uh, short term memory loss he can't form new sh- short term uh, uh, memories and it's it's like I said it's it feel it's like a stunt but also it's they're linchpins of the movie as well. Right. And right. it's a stunt that he then builds an airtight movie around. 
Yeah, and I think there's very few movies that are that tricksy that hold up the multiple viewings. Like I can think mm-hmm. of like M Night Shyamalan's uh, Sixth Sense is one of those where it's like, oh fuck, am I sure I saw yeah. what I saw? And you watch it, and it's like, and in fact, that's where I, uh, you know, multiple watches of Inception just crystallize what I think of of the movie and and how is as tricky as it is, it plays it plays very very straight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I was give... amazed on subsequent viewings after the first how straightforward the film actually is. Uh, yeah, because the, the first time I came out, my head was reeling. I was like, who is where at any given moment? Second and third times, I'm like, oh, they're at this level. They go mm-hmm. to this level. They get kicked out to that level. It's all right there on the page. There's yeah, there's no, yeah. no confusion really about any of it. Yeah. And there's been a lot of I mean, I even contemporaneously, there was a lot of like infographics showing like the different levels and where you hit limbo and, you know, the yeah. different uh, timelines and the depth, of the characters or what depth they're at any particular time. Um, it's one of those things that seems a lot more confusing than it is. Now, there is still, you know, I think room for interpretation. And yeah. ultimately, uh, what you feel, I, I do think, you know, and I said this on the, the Dreamcast, um, I do think there's a right answer or if you, right answer being the answer that I think Nolan uh, had when he was shooting it. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of different ways you can interpret this. Not just in terms of like whether it's real or not, but there's like you know uh, a, a very popular um, interpretation that I don't think can be dismissed through evidence is that this is an allegory of making a film, you mm, know, right. like this shared dreaming and like multiple people coming together and uh, how uh, you know like Sato's the producer and uh, Dom's or Cobb's the director and Ariadne is the uh, you know like. Uh, uh, artistic design, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, who's Cillian Murphy play? Um, Robert Fisher. Fisher. Okay. Yeah. Bobby Fisher, <laughs> the chess star. Uh, uh, he's the audience like, and that all tracks through. And I read in an interview that like, uh, no one was surprised that people had that interpretation, but he said it makes sense because I've only really worked with, like I, I wanted to uh, model an efficient creative team working together. And the only experience I have with that is in a film crew. So like it's, mm-hmm. I, I, I did kind of base these roles around that cause it's what I knew. Um, but I, I yeah. think it's really cool that there's multiple ways to look at this and, and, that, and that, still to this day, you can make arguments for and against the, the reality of the film. Absolutely. Um, that ambiguity was intentional uh, Nolan talks about how intentional that was and how you're left to kind of figure out where you stand on the ending of this film. Uh, you know, he's he's not going to try and push you too far in one direction. Uh, but it's interesting that you you brought up, you know, how his his process of constructing this film kind of how he may, maybe he thought about it um, as, mm-hmm. as like a film set or a film production. Uh maybe in not such specific terms, but it's also got so many roots in a heist film, right? Like it essentially sure. is a heist film, but it's modified with all of these extras, like the, the tiny wimey plot, um, you know, the, the dream world, uh, there, there's so, so many things that he kind of bolted onto the heist that it doesn't feel just like a regular heist movie. And sure. I really appreciated that, but you can go through it and you can say, okay, uh, you you know you got your standard heist tropes of all these characters, mm-hmm. these archetypes. Uh, Dom or Cobb's the ringleader. Uh, you've got the the architect who's like the 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 plant person. I don't know what to call these characters, but like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know you you've got everybody in their role functioning as a heist team, and it, 
it it just so happens that that lines up, but it had to be intentional, right? You start out. Oh with that yeah, core. like and the fact that you're going around the globe to assemble the team because uh-huh. you know that this is a special job that you can't just get done with their own. So you got to go and recruit the you know it's Ocean's Eleven. You know you got to get the Chinese acrobat, you got to get the face man, you got to get the confidence man, you got to get the and they don't you know, they guy never... with the technology and explosives and this is yeah. all that like you except for it's dream shit. You got to get a guy who is a good forger um, who can assume identities in subconscious. You have yeah. to get a good drug guy cause you're going to have to s- suspend these guys and, uh, uh, unconsciousness for a long period of time. And it's, it's, you're, you're right. You even got the scene where they're kind of laying out the plan mm-hmm. and they're drawing schematics of what they're invading and it, it tracks. Yeah. It tracks one to one. Yeah. Uh, it definitely does. And I, I like the way that they introduce all these characters. It doesn't feel like, oh, well, we got to get the gang together. It's it's always like, oh, well, you know, this plot point of why we need Ellen Page's Ariadne character to be the architect bleeds over from plot to character, right? Because Dom mm-hmm. is having trouble. Or is it Dom? Is Dom Cobb? Is that his name? Why do it's I keep, Dom Cobb, yeah. Okay, I keep wanting to call him Dob. 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 Yeah, so... So Dom, you know, is out of commission as the architect, right? Normally he would do this, mm-hmm. but we find out that Mal is keeping him from uh, being able to create because she would know the maze and she would be, but it's all yeah. his subconscious, right? It's like he's got an emotional handicap that's keeping him. Absolutely. From yeah. yeah. And it makes perfect sense to tie the plot and the characters together in that way. And that's what I really appreciate about this movie on third watch is just the intricacy of all the pieces working together, which is why I called it a clockwork movie. Right. Uh, before we get too far into spoilers, should I uh, do, because it has been, it's a 10-year-old movie, should I uh, do a brief uh, synopsis for people who uh, this is their first time through? Yeah, and then maybe I'll run down some of the awards that it won. Okay. So, Inception is a movie set in the near future after military research and using dreams as a way to enter subconscious and extract information against a target will a target's will uh, becomes, uh, if not commonplace, at least existing in the world. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Dom, a leader of a very talented team of extractors that professionally steal information in this manner for hire. However, a powerful businessman has a different proposal. Instead of stealing information from someone's mind, he wants them to plant an idea in the air of a rival rival corporation's head to force him to dissolve his father's company, gaining, obviously, competitive advantage. Uh, I'm sure Be- Bezos and Musk lay awake at night dreaming of this technology existing. Uh, much of the movie takes place on multiple levels of dream space where personal identity, the laws of physics, and even death itself are much more conceptual and fluid than they are in uh, real space or real life, uh, and that that's that's essentially the movie's hook. If I lit, if I said anything more, it would probably be massive spoilers. <laughs> there's a really uh, cool hallway scene. <laughs> there's a really cool hallway scene, and they filmed it all aboard the Vomit Comet. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's not true. Yeah. Uh, what does because this movie uh, made a lot of money and mm-hmm. garnished quite a bit of awards. What the what was its impact in 2010? Yeah, so uh, it was the number six most popular film. Uh, according to the box office in 2010, and it was beat by the likes of Avatar, and which oh, came out Jesus. the year before. Um, yeah, and still making money. Right, very, very late in the year, like December 18th or something. Um, mm-hmm. And then Toy Story 3, uh, which was the number one movie actually that year. Damn, beating... Oh, because yeah, the, the Pandora or the, the Avatar... Avatar. 
split across the year. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Had its big box office weekends in uh, uh-huh. you know twenty twenty nine twenty nine. That's how you yeah. say that. Twenty um, twenty nine. <laughs> the the I guess the surprising one was that Alice in Wonderland was actually a more popular film than this. What the fuck for real? Yeah. Speaking yeah. of a movie that's made zero cultural impact. Uh, this thing had a budget of 160 million, made 830 million worldwide. So, pretty big success. You know, it's funny because this. Did you know that this movie had no second unit? Christopher Nolan was behind the camera with a cinematographer for every fucking shot in this movie, which is like really? a very indie filmmaker kind of move. Yeah, you don't usually see that in a 160 million dollar movie. No. Uh, that that's almost you know two and a half hours long like that's like peter jackson had like i think three or four camera units running around new zealand all the time filming stuff so yeah i thought that was an interesting piece of trivia that it's like uh you know he kind of went back to his indie roots but with a blockbuster batman budget (laughs) and and the marketing budget on this thing was enormous it was a hundred million and i think back to that time were there many movies getting a hundred million dollars worth of marketing budget probably just the biggest ones yeah 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 yeah. like avatar probably did um, right. Yeah, but I, I was kind of blown away, and it, you almost didn't even need that kind of budget. Although maybe I feel that way because they had the budget. But I remember yeah. seeing the poster, seeing the shot of the city folding in on itself, you know, and just going, "Okay, I'm seeing that day one." There's no question about it. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't need to be sold on this movie. <laughs> Plus, this movie, I remember the trailer had that like omnipresent, yeah. and it's a, a prominent soundtrack, and kind of started that trend, right? Yeah, like this movie had its cultural impact was very similar, I think, to The Matrix and that like Mm -hmm. uh, it popularized a bunch of different trends uh, like the Bois um, effect. And it just almost everybody saw this movie. It was something that like, you know, it's uh, it's 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 a it's a cultural touchstone in that in that way. Now, there's been a little backlash against it because it's it's popular and Nolan has continued to be popular. And I think he's like. Offense, like like a lot of true film fans are mildly offensive that he's kind of almost got this uh, Kubrickian uh, uh, stature among and and like but he makes mass market kind of movies that make a ton of money and that's like a somehow bad a hairpin that's hard for some people to turn like you know yeah, yeah. Um, I and know. I don't know like it's possible that he's overrated as a director but the man makes really complicated films competently and they make a shit ton of money yeah I, I appreciate the work of a good craftsperson. Um, yeah. And Nolan is certainly that, even I mean, if he's you wanna... not the most art. He's no David Lynch. I'll tell. I'll no, give you that. But like, right. But he's also no like Michael David Bay. Lynch's work. He's also not Michael Bay. I mean, if you want to yeah, watch, yeah. watch a man piss away $200 million, go go see a Bay film. Go see right? Transformers too. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Or four or five, whatever the fuck they're <laughs> in now. I stopped. Transception. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's it's interesting that you mentioned the blah because mm-hmm. it did become ubiquitous after that. And this movie actually won most of its awards for its soundtrack um, or for its for its sound, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. So it won four Oscars in, in the 83rd Academy Awards, uh, one for best cinematography, one for best sound editing, best sound mixing and best visual effects. Mm. Uh, so you, you got like, you know, the hard sciences of, of filmmaking is what it's winning for. It's not winning for the art stuff. And I think that's fair. Um, this movie was technologically kind of, or visually kind of mind blowing, uh, auditorially mind blowing when it came out. I think it deserved those. 
that hundred million dollar budget, like it, it, it uh, much like the Matrix, and actually, funny enough, ten years later, much like Tenet itself, mm-hmm. very mysterious. Like no yeah. one really knew what the hell this movie was about. You saw, like, you know, it's like the. In, I remember in the Matrix, like, how the fuck is all this different, disparate things linked together in some unified? And like, you know, here you see this city folding on itself, and you see in the trailer Joseph Gordon Lovett is like dancing in zero G in a hallway, and there's like an automatic weapons fire, but like almost like magic powers and like what the shit is going on? Like what possible narrative hook could you assemble all these things on? And now you got Nolan with Tenet. And the tragedy of this is, I don't think anyone's going to see it. <laughs> I, I like if Tenet, yeah. if, if Tenet comes out in the big box movie theater, I ain't going. Uh, so it's only, it's yeah. only chance to land is probably on direct video. And I kind I, if I'm Christopher Nolan, I understand being bummed out. I guess he's one of the big drivers of like, no, we are going to release this in the theater. Um, you know, but yeah. damn, like it's it's a shame, but like I I do think that, uh, but it's been a minute since you know uh, I've seen a movie like a trailer for a movie like Inception, mm-hmm. like The Matrix. It's kind of like Jesus, this looks cool as hell, but what the hell is it about? And you know, tenants are next next shot at it. Yeah, what was that? Um, what was that one movie about the guy who goes to the sanitarium and? Yeah, gets like the worms or the slugs or eels or whatever in the tank, and he's like, "Yeah, I remember that's that's another one that we were excited for the Matrix potential and it super didn't excited. It. It, yeah, it, don't don't bother with that one. Um, the yeah. other four that it <laughs> lost, uh, yeah, the other four categories: best picture, best original screenplay. It both it lost both of those to The King's Speech, which mm. I've never seen. Um, I'm sure it's great. Best yeah. art direction, it lost to Alice in Wonderland, which. Okay, I could I can kind of understand that. Um, best original score. This is interesting because it won so many sound editing and sound mixing uh, categories. Best original score lost to the social net- social network. Uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus, Atticus Ross. Uh, those guys have been doing amazing work in the last sure. ten years. But I can't hum a single like like you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like they did some badass work on the Watchmen too, yeah. um, and I would immediately recognize if I heard it, but I couldn't hum you a single bar. Like even a, like the really ki- uh, kick-ass Angela Abar uh, Sister Night shit. Like I, I know the feeling and the ba- the the bass that hits you, but I couldn't tell you like what the melody is. It's very yeah, you know, industrial atmospheric. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you know, Inception, it's it's definitely got a recognizable theme, and like the Bois was such like it it. It infected movie trailers for I, I think they're still pretty prominent movie trailers, but like for a good three years afterwards, every fucking action or science fiction or any kind of drama had to have one of those big, you know, dissolve cut to a spectacular special effects scene of blah, you know, yeah. punctuating each one. And I mean, it's been parodied and oh, yeah, you know, it's yeah, it changed. It changed the the soundscape of film. Yeah. Uh, well, where do we want to begin? Because I've got a couple of things I think uh, just like that Nolan does really well. Okay, yeah, let's, and let's do that. I think one of the things that Nolan does really well is selling the idea of competency where the audience doesn't really have a good judge of it. Um, you know, there's a couple things like uh, that there's shorthand for. Um, like uh, if you're talking about an intelligence officer in a movie, uh, if he can, like you say, what do you know about General Vladimir fucker? 
well, General Vladimir fucker graduated uh, magna cum laude from the first Soviet class of 1993 with a bronze Soviet star. Like, if you just rattle off a bunch of extraneous, it's like, okay, well, he knows his shit, right? Yeah. Um, you know, a soldier field stripping his weapon in five seconds, like, tells you. But, like, how the fuck do you sell competency as a dream extractor? Um, but I think he does a really good job. And, 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 and a lot of this comes through the lens of Ariadne because she is the audience surrogate. She is the yeah. one who has no idea about how this shit works and they're explaining to it. And just him like putting her through the maze interview, like it sells her the idea of, like, what is a maze? What does a proficient maze architect look like? And like in 30 seconds, they sell you on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, like, like, uh, so- something that's adaptive, quick on your feet. Um, and something the audience can follow along with. And I just noticed that like time and time again, he's effortless at showing like Eames is an extremely good, uh, forger. Um, Ariadne is a good architect. Um, you know, like the, the, uh, uh, Yusuf is a good drug cocktail guy, you know, like a semi-competent research guy. (laughs) Yeah. Researcher slash kind of like the, the, the manager of the group. And they do, he sells this stuff. And again, you have no idea what the fuck it looks like to be like, uh, how would you sell a competent dentist? You know, uh, it's like you you have no experience in, in the craft and he just does it in 30 seconds. It's kind of like, uh, really amazing um that, and again it's one of the laugh out loud scenes for me in this movie mm-hmm. is when they do the thinking outside of the box a literal thinking outside of the box moment it's when he's giving her uh the tech cops giving ariadne the test to mm. construct this maze in a minute uh or in right. two minutes that i can't solve in a minute and she's like right. drawing on the boxes all square she flips mm-hmm. over the notepad to the blank side where right. it doesn't have the the graph you know the graphing charts or or paper uh-huh. And draws a circular one. I'm like, oh, that's a literal thinking outside the box moment. Yeah, and I, I, I couldn't script. help but laugh. This thing outside the box is flipping the script. It's uh-huh. uh, he's and he's he's just like I said, really good at it. Now I I noticed some people think that like Ariadne um, kind of drags down the movie, but like without her, you'd be fucking lost. Drags you know? down the movie. Yeah, I don't. Just I don't like there's see so it, much. Like... She's she is saddled with so much of the movie's exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true. That's no, absolutely so true. Kyle. Yeah. But I think that, like, um, you don't feel it. It feels very natural because they've got, you know, um, it is. I guess it's interesting. Why, did they ever explain in the movie why they can't use just some other architect? Uh, why they have to go to, like, Cobb's dad to find recruit an, an architectural student or something like that? Well, I mean, what they're doing is not strictly legal. Um, and so I guess they would need somebody they trust. And, you know, Cobb trusts his dad and his dad trusts her. Mm. I, is, I also get the idea this exfiltration is kind of like shady anyway. This you, this is not like a white hat security team. This is more. Yeah. And I, I guess that probably those those types of people do exist in this world. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, the people that uh, trained Fisher and, you know, weaponizing his mind probably are white hat exfiltrators or whatever. Um, but it seems like all the exfil- uh, all the extractors in this world are kind of you got to understand it like Danny Ocean. Sure. You know. Uh, maybe they're not actively wanted by Interpool, but they probably should be 100% of the time. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because, like, what he goes down for, what he's want, I, maybe that's not true because what he's wanted for is the death of his wife, mm-hmm. not that he is a renowned subconscious thief. Yeah. 
Um, uh, yeah. But it does like how do you do this job legally? Because you got your 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 extracting information against people's will, drugging them without their knowledge. Yeah. Invading their deepest subconscious layers. <laughs> like, no, it's got to be illegal. I, I think he says somewhere along the line, like, there weren't many legitimate opportunities. Like, he he might mm-hmm. have helped the military develop this tech. Um, right. I and, guess there's that, too. Yeah. And then the thing with his wife came up, and then he couldn't find opportunities that weren't illegal. And so he just yeah. does the illegal like, ones. The government can sanction all kinds of stuff up until mass murder and yeah. have it be legal. Yeah, it's totally legal if the government tells you. Uh, the, the other thing uh, about... Ariadne, the okay. So I just don't believe that she's too much in this movie. I think, look, seventy five percent of this movie is getting us up to speed, so that the last twenty five percent hits. And I think, yes, like okay, if if you have a structural problem with this film, you don't want to sit through seventy five percent of uh, world building and exposition. Right. I okay, that's fine. I get it. Yeah, sure. But I I don't think it's a fault of this film, personally. I I really, really enjoyed learning about this world, learning Mm -hmm. the rules that it's working within, learning how those rules can change given different circumstances. Um, And if you didn't have a character like Ariadne, who who would Cobb tell these rules to? It seemed really ridiculous. Like, hey, I know we've been doing this for 10 years uh joseph gordon love it but just, right. just 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 make sure we're all on the same page what happens how does a kick work and and the thing was <laughs> right. also like i think no one had to spend a lot of time because it's not like these rules are just it's not like harry potter where it's like oh you know here's a wand lore and it's made his nine and a half inches made out of you woods got a unicorn string it's like he's basing on a lot of things that we have common experiences like how many people have been kicked out of a sleep by the sensation of falling yeah you know, oh, I love um, it. His the idea world. that like your dream, one of the signatures of a dream is there's no like beginning. Like you uh-huh. did, you don't remember you going to sleep, lose it. Like like you kind of start in the middle of things. You never question that reality. And the idea of like, oh, if someone is in there and helped you question it, it would attract your subconscious to defend. Like that stuff is is really fucking cool. The fact that you shouldn't dream real places because you might lose the connection between what's real and what's not. The the, uh, the way that that the dream world and the real world blur together in that like, Oh, there's a safe here. That's a safe place to put my thoughts yes. that I don't want anyone to know about. Right. Like, yes. It's and, and how important cool. the, 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 the more powerful uh, method of incepting an idea is to work with things that's from the person's own mind. Like something yeah. that I just noticed this time is when they hold a gun to uh, Bobby Fischer's head and say, "Tell me the opening. To, tell me the the best opening of a chess game." Mm-hmm. And he's rat and he's rattles off some number. That number had no meaning. Yeah. But they continue to use it, like at every level of the dream. Like now, it is the phone number that the girl gives him, which turns out is a the hotel room, room address or hotel room number. And then when he has to enter a code to his own mind, he has that number that he thinks is his own idea, even though it was just some random shit they spewed out. Like all that shit really yeah. tracks and it it uses everything that we all know, experience about right. dreams and just says, oh, what if there's a little bit of pseudoscience that kind of stitches this together? Or these are like the keys you can use to hack into someone's subconscious. And it makes it feel it makes you feel smart because like, oh, I right. do these things and I can see how they fit together. And bam, there you go. Even down to uh, the time dilation stuff, right? In a dream. Sure. A second can go by in the real world and it feels like an eternity. Uh yeah, I love I love how it's all meshed together. There, there's other yeah. subconscious things they do in this movie, like when they try and pull the Clark, the Mr. Clark gambit, I think is what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on on Robert Fisher, 
to to turn his own subconscious against him. Um, th- before that happens, they have in the real world Leonardo DiCaprio toast Cillian Murphy over his father, right? And so right. that puts that guy's face in his head. And so I think yes. when he sees him in the dream world, he can go, oh, this is a dream because I know that guy in real life. And mm-hmm. now he's showing up subconsciously in my dream. I just it's met part him. part of my projections. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really, really brilliant when it comes to the way it uses dreams. And the f- kind of dreamy architecture, like the pin, like they illustrate the pin roast steps. Um, you know, like I've, I've definitely been in a situation where I've like a, one of my... <laughs> One of the mo- one of recurring nightmare I have is I'm driving in my neighborhood and I can't quite turn into my driveway. <laughs> oh, no. Like I get there and I'm like, oh, God, well, I guess I'll, I'll circle around. And like, I feel like I can get stuck there for hours and it becomes genuinely stressful because for some reason I just can't make that turn. It's going to be dangerous. And like the the idea that you can have this impossible architecture that looks right from a sim- like, you know, from a certain perspective, but not another. And they do some. You know, like that, that pin row, every time they do the pin row steps, it's a practical effect. Yeah. Like they do fixed perspective. And then it's like the Indiana Jones last crusade where it's like, you know, he, he throws the pebbles onto the path and uh-huh. it looks invisible. But then you the camera comes over and it's like, oh, it's all fucked up. That shit, you know, and it, it's not a digital effect. It's it's something that they actually built this weird, impossible architecture and then got the camera angles and made it all work. Mm-hmm. Um, it just. It, it's 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 really neat. It's really neat. Uh, so we kind of talked about a little bit of the structure, but I want to talk about the aesthetics of this film because you know it didn't win for for the uh, best artistry or whatever the hell it is um, that year. But there are some aesthetics that stand out to me. Like when I think of this movie, and I know it's a small portion of this movie, but I think of that warm wood aesthetic or that those those warm temperature colors uh mm. in like mall and dom's house and in the hotel mm-hmm. uh that's one of the aesthetics i think of and the other is the snow level from yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why i associate it with like golden eye and james bond movies and well so i found this because i just you know i just watched on her majesty's secret service that like weird non connery non uh more non you know craig james bond the george lazenby or whatever the hell it, okay uh this this fight that 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 level is literally based on the climax of that movie and nolan okay. confirmed it like that's his favorite bond and he thought that was always like the coolest bad guy layer and the coolest of the bond costumes and J- uh, like tom hardy is literally wearing james bond's like like uniform well, costume in this thing yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's iconic for sure. What do you think about Tom Hardy in this movie? Like, because I don't know that I had ever seen him in anything before. That's the thing. Like, I've seen him in so much since, but this this is my first. Like, this guy who, you know, there's something there's something very interesting um, and like omnisexual about him. 
Hmm. Um, like the fact that he's literally gender fluid in the dream world. Uh, I think he's playing gay or bisexual or how the hell would you even know? And he's ridiculously attractive. He looks very good in the suit. He looked very good, comfortable, like hefting a grenade launcher and dispatching people like, you know, hostile dream projections. Uh, and I was like, man, like, man, um, sometimes you see a person in, in a movie, you think this guy is going to go on to bigger and better things. Sometimes they flame out. Sometimes they don't. Um, and then I went after I saw that, I kept on hearing like, oh, man, you got to see him in rock and roll. And I'm like, oh, it's a Guy Ritchie film. Fuck yeah, I'll watch it. And he kind of plays a similar uh, character in that film. And then uh, I hear that he's what is that? Uh, Bronson. Mm-hmm. And he's nothing like any of those things in Bronson. He's this violent, homicidal maniac in prison in Bronson. And you see him like channel some of that energy and like that. Just you haven't seen the new Capone. No, which honestly, it's not. I don't think it's ultimately worth watching. Okay. But he is a fucking force of nature in this film, playing this like, uh, you know, Al Capone in the last year of his life, where his brain's getting holes eaten at it by latent syphilis and all this other stuff. Um, he just is. Uh, I, I don't know. He's like a what a buff Gary Oldman because he can <laughs> he can really be he can really inhabit so many different types of characters, but he also has this like insane physical presence that most traditional character actors, you know, a guy built like uh, Tom Hardy usually plays like Mad Max, and that's it. Like you know, he's he's just going to be action yeah, hero after weird. action hero after action hero, and he's had this like entire art house cinema career on top of all that stuff too. Um, and yeah, he's just I, always rock solid, believable in everything he does. I, I look at him in this movie. I wouldn't say he's built. Uh, I, I think that happened really? later. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm taking my, uh, you know, Bane and uh, Mad yeah. Max into it. But like, I thought he was a substantial per Cause I also know that in a year or two before this, he was in Bronson and he's fucking ripped and shredded in that movie too. Right. Uh, I mean, maybe he's in good shape, but he doesn't seem overly uh, he doesn't seem much bulkier than any of the other characters who I know are not bulky, like mm-hmm. you know, Leonardo DiCaprio. I, I'm not sure. Known he's ever Atlas out his life. <laughs> Known Atlas of a man, Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> and <laughs> Joseph Gordon Lovett. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Titans of, of flesh. <laughs> Anatomy <laughs> references. Yeah, <laughs> no. I think Leo's most known for being a dad bod guy now. So, yeah, I mean, sure. I, yeah. So stacking them up next to each other it, he didn't look that much different from them so maybe Fair it was enough. the suit maybe it was the puffy snow but everybody in a tux and yeah uh-huh. uh but he definitely bulked up in in subsequent films and, and maybe bulked down for this if you're saying bronson was before this and he was jacked uh, we also but i i've oh, been impressed ahead. with with his stuff i i'm i was kind of surprised to find out he's british uh after he did that accent in this movie i was like oh is that his real accent or is that no it's his real accent i guess um, cause everything I've seen him in since has been either, you know, he's having a mask strapped to his face and he's mm-hmm. talking like weird. Yeah. I can't even describe it. Um, oh. or he's doing a very, very passable American accent. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. He, he's great. He's, he's shot to stardom in the last 10 years. Sure. Um, I think there's a lot of great performances. We talked about Leonardo DiCaprio and I, again, like he has to be an everyman, but also kind of a superhero in this film, but also grounded emotionally in terms of his children and his relationship with his father and especially his relationship with his ex-wife. And you can't talk about that without uh, Marion Cotillard uh, because I don't think I'd ever seen her in a different film. I've seen her since then in a bunch of different things, you know, like most, Mm -hmm. most recently contagion. Um, 
But man, she plays a real crazy bitch in this film, and it's really, really good and disturbing. And the idea, like the you, you have to feel the horror of what Mal has done, and that like you know he gets desperate, and this you know uh, his wife has lost her sense of reality and limbo, and well-meaning he incepts the idea that this is not real, and he does it so well that it plagues her thoughts. Um, where she gets and this is where a lot of the alternate you know interpretations of the movie come from uh the idea that real life can seem like a dream if you've been in limbo for a significant amount amount of time yeah um but that yeah those scenes of her you know ranting and raving about her children uh the plan that she has to make it seem like he's murdered her mm-hmm. so that she he has to kill himself so they can get out of the thing and see their children again um you know, but also she has to play like, uh, you know, uh, someone that at some point that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio would still believably be in love with and, and can really torment him. Yeah. Uh, and she's just really good. And again, with very little screen time, uh, especially since you go through over half the movie without even realizing the true nature of her reality. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, like yeah, the, the believability of their relationship really is is sold to me by Leonardo DiCaprio's performance because I don't mm-hmm. think the movie does much. The movie shows a couple of shots of them happy overlooking the city they built in the, yeah, yeah, the limbo. Yeah. Like they, they don't do much. The heavy lifting is done by, by Leo selling how much he loves this woman. Right. Yeah. 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 So you assume that, Oh, they must've had a happy relationship at some point, but just like, you know, that moment where she jumps off the ledge and he, yeah. Like in real time, fully like lo- like the unreality because you know he's been through 50 years of limbo too mm-hmm. like how unreal but also how awfully terribly real it is like it's just again i don't know what it looks like to go through that but i think it probably looks exactly like how he he did it um okay well, let me ask you this she's just really good at playing crazy and also there's a moment where she's allowed to be genuinely frightening like when she first realizes Ellen Page is yes. intruding in their little dream world and she's almost like something out of the Overlook Hotel a vengeful mm-hmm. restful spirit the restless spirit that'll, that'll come and get you absolutely yeah th- those scenes are terrifying and she's fantastic in them um, mm-hmm. and then you know scenes where like they're sitting at the table and she's just trying to make her case for you know this this isn't real come with me um you know, and even though we know it's his subconscious he's talking to at that point, like you still feel the weight of those conversations, and she's great at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you brought up the idea that like, uh, Dom Cobb, Dom Cobb, Cobb Dom, whatever, <laughs> he he's he's real hard on those uh, Cobbs, mm-hmm. is trying to get her out of limbo, and they've been there for fifty years. Has anyone did anyone stop to ask the question why? Why what? Why is Trying it important to get, to get her out of limbo? Uh I don't know. Because if you Other... can live an entire lifetime of fulfilling happy life with godlike powers mm-hmm. in a dream world, why come back to the real world? In the space of four yeah, it is interesting. Because I actually think the one of the prime uses of this technology would just be to extend your perceived life. Certainly, like, yeah. You could take a four-year university education and a shared dream experience. You could do it when you're 18 and you'd be done a month later. 
Yeah. You could have I, a I, you could have a graduate degree. Uh, you could have a medical degree. You could have a, a doctorate, postdoctorate degree. Yeah. Um. Like I'm actually surprised that like they showed that like mostly it's just people being burnt out. I thought it would be like rich, high achieving college kids would be the ones seeking out Yusuf to oh, like put me the, under. The yeah. New so I can, <laughs> Yeah. It's like Adderall. It's like Adderall times a million. Yeah. Uh, I, I know kung fu. Right. Everybody can have their I know kung <laughs> shit, fu. Moment. Yeah. Yeah, you can go get get taught kung fu by an expert, and it takes you, you know, uh, like I, that would be an insanely like a destinations. You just have like a, you know, like mm-hmm. a, you're you're walking on the beach, and there's a little booth. It's like, hey, learn how to surf in five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna take you two levels d- down, and you're going to you're gonna you're gonna surf at our limbo dreamscape, and you're gonna come out, and you're gonna be ready to go day one of your vacation. Yeah, like that would be an insane use of this of this technology. I would think so. And I also don't understand, like, if you're going to live 50 years in the limbo, you're going to experience a lifetime. Why are you so concerned about getting back out? I think that's the biggest criticism, because, like, there is this idea that, like, limbo will make you crazy because the human, like, we evolved to slowly contextualize, like, you know, uh, I, I I don't ever like when I think of myself in previous versions of me, like 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, I never think of myself as what I looked like then. I always think of like, you know, myself, you know? Yeah. Um, and like the idea that you would live this life, you'd be 80, 90 years old and then you wake up and you like it's it's just an hour has gone by in your old life that you can like, how do you remember like the minutia of your children's days routines or what was important to them when you've gone and, and had these godlike. But the idea that they've spent 50 years in that, like you'd think the threshold of those effects would already been would have already taken place. Yeah. And you might as well um, live out the rest of your dream life. Um, as yeah. Opposed to your real life. Get lost in limbo. You know, if however long you can stay there, just stay there. I. I don't understand Dom's obsession with getting back to the real world, which is, you know, the the main driver for the emotional side of this movie. I mean, I think you can like if if uh, like one, uh, it would have been interesting because like I I think you can almost understand as a selfish desire. Like if Mal or if Dom has suddenly woken up to the idea that this is just a dream, like suddenly, Mm -hmm. like imagine if if like any dream that's even pleasant, like once you realize it's a dream and it's not real and there's like it's 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 keeping you actively keeping you from getting back to your real life where you have children and family and things waiting for you. Like it's almost a selfish thing. Like I've you know, I've realized the reality of this nature and now I need you to do it as well. Um, But they don't really make that case. Um, Yeah, I guess if they had kids on the outside in the real world. um, Yeah. That that could be a reason to go back, uh, and they did. But it's it's but those kids are still there. Like the, those kids, right. that's like this is just like uh, you know you giving you're taking your kids to grandma, and then you go take and check into a hotel room and do like a I don't know an ounce of mushrooms with your wife. Mm-hmm. Like you can get in all kinds of crazy time dilation effects with that stuff and live alter alternate realities and things. But you know what, your kids are still there, and in the morning you're gonna wake up and be fine and go see them again. Yeah. Um, true. But then again, like I said, I can't say what it feels like to be um, in limbo for 50 years and to wake up out of it. it yeah. um, I did think like speaking of the visual effects, like there's so many things that like uh, like when Mal and his wife are on the beach and they're actually building sandcastles, you can see those buildings erecting in real time. And mm-hmm. when they dis- demolish them, you can see them being flattened in the back. It just is like a subtle background detail that I thought was like really fucking cool. It gave you the idea of this, like, man, what if you're on a you're building sandcastles, but that act is also creating full scale castles in the background? I, yeah. It's it's a really, really neat piece of world building. 
Yeah, they don't show a uh, ton of it. Um, it's yeah. just enough to give you a vision of what you know you you would expect to see and let, lets you yeah. sort of run with it in your own mind. Actually, I have a ton of like minor gripes from the the film or things I don't. Do you, do you want to do those like all in succession, or do you want to continue to talk about some things that the film did well? Are they all like plot related? Because I feel like we're about mm. to turn a corner into talking about the plot and the mechanics They're, of the movie. Yeah, I guess there's more of yeah. I I don't know. Like here here's one, and yeah. you tell me whether it fits in. Um, it's somewhat unbelievable that Robert Fisher would get bumped from his private private jet, which was a substantial vehicle, mm-hmm. and then he gets placed on you know uh, the seven forty seven and first class, and he has no entourage. He doesn't have a personal assistant. He doesn't have a bodyguard. It's just him and his rich billionaire. Uh, uh, mogul father's corpse flying. <sighs> Nobody and like even like maybe it's like well he's the he can only get one first class ticket. His assistant is like, but his assistant's not going to come in and check on him. Uh, you know it's like they do. I think they 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 explain how you can get in that situation. Uh, you know Sato buys the airline or whatever, but still yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah, this God, guy just travels. Just yeah, it's like I, I just bought the airline. I thought it'd be easier, but like oh. that didn't really kind of make sense. Okay, um, sure. And then, yeah, the other one that's more plot-driven is uh, they play fast and loose with the idea of what can kick in, what can't. Uh, and, like, you know, this this drug um, protects, you know, like, dulls all your senses. You can be slapped. You can be splashed with water. Gunfire can go off by your head. Not a problem. But a kick will still bring you out of it. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of fucking kicks that are missed. Um, like, especially in the the van level where, like, they roll down an embankment at no point, like... You did that kick you out of sleep? The fact that, that when they hit in yeah. free fall, it's a plot point that Joseph Gordon Lovett is experiencing free fall. Well, if your inner ear detects a drop, then the drop is detected. And they're like, oh, we missed that one. We can, we can, like, I, I get that the ones down below would be stuck there, but Joseph Gordon Lovett should have woke up. Yeah, it feels and like the, immediately smashed into the water, which would have r- r- put them all in limbo. Uh, yeah, it's like the visuals of of how cool they wanted the shot to be, and, yeah. and the bleed over between the levels were at odds. Like, yeah, okay, you've got you know this rule about the kick, and if you experience a falling sensation, you're kicked out. But then you also want to show like how the effects of the level above you are affecting this dream level. Yeah. And it's an amazing set piece like that. That zero gravity shit with Joseph Gordon Lovett in that, you know, vertical hallway is, you know, one of the signature moments of the film. It's like it's that or, you know, the folding up city that, you you know, I think people remember most from this movie. And Mm -hmm. even I even thought I I thought the stuff of in watching them inside the van in super slow motion where their like arms are all kind of flailing around. And like, I thought that was really, really cool, but it didn't make. A lot of and that's that's like the only thing I think about that. Like everything else, like I, I thought, you know, him rigging up the elevator to explode to to generate artificial gravity, the fact that they blew up the entire base to drop everybody, like all that stuff really was well thought out. And I think there's a couple things where Nolan's like, you know what, fuck it, people are either going to go with this or they're not. Yeah, because <laughs> I want my zero G scene, damn it. <laughs> yeah, and you got to give it to him. Most movies have a lot more holes like that oh yeah a lot more of uh yeah just paper over this and keep going yeah yeah um and then like i don't know there's a whole bunch of questions i have uh that's i think there's there's others like the fact that like um 
I buy that you hook a guy up to a machine in real life and you can share his dream. But when you start getting multiple levels deep and you're still using a dream version of that machine to do it and going into particular people's subconscious and that all tracks at some point, like consciousness maps into a physical body, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a little bit of like, I don't know that that all particularly tracks, but I think that's just one of the leaps of faith. Like the fact that you've got an intravenous machine that can yeah. link eight people in a dream world. You have to accept if you don't, then fuck you. This movie's not for you. Right. It, uh, but there's like, I'm close to like, what the fuck is actually, what does it mean when they hook up a dream machine to someone's corpse three levels deep into, you know, uh, the James the James Bond level. What the hell does that even? What are you even doing? What are you interfacing with? Yeah. What kind no, of projection? It, you can't come at this as like a, a science fiction angle. I I would almost call this yeah. like a fantasy film. It's not even. They never try to explain it. They don't extrapolate on existing technologies. There's none of right. that. It's just. This I think Matrix is the did rule. it. There's a lot of that problems with Matrix. The Matrix too. You uh-huh. know, like why does a fucking telephone line connect you but they they have like you know that this is actually you know it's not none of this is real it's but but there are real elements like these things map to some procedures and stuff in the matrix and like mm. there are little holes that you can exploit hard points they call them but the, the, there I, I wish they had like some kind of hard point hand wave where they could explain like why this is this is allowed and then it would be the perfect airtight movie but. and they never bothered to try to explain the dream machine right Thank God, because yeah. like how, <laughs> how yeah. does hooking up an IV machine, you know, put you in someone's subconscious? I don't know. I, I don't know if Nolan has done like uh, like Kubrick, right? He would have gone two yeah. years researching this sure. film, uh, coming up with the the edges of science to try and explain, right. OK, how could this happen? And maybe it doesn't make it into the film as an explanation, but it's in sure. his head. Yeah, and it would have it would have reflected in and right. Did Nolan yeah. do that? I don't know. He was you know spinning this idea up in his head for ten years, um, so I'm sure he has a lot of thoughts on that topic. Yeah, but you know, I don't need it in this movie. I really don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of my questions, I guess, coming out of this movie is if you've got a totem mm-hmm. and you know the weight and balance of it. Would that totem not also appear to tell you you were in the real world inside of your dream world? I guess it's the idea that like it would behave differently in the dream world. But you're right. But like why? if you perfectly understand uh because the dream world doesn't obey physics, but it mostly does. You know, so like why would Mal's uh totem continually spin in a dream world? Obviously it wouldn't in the in the fake world the dream yeah. world or the real world, but why would it spin in the, why wouldn't it behave? You know, it's not like you drive a car and you put it in park or you put it in drive and it goes in reverse, you know, <laughs> like all these dream, right. you, you, you pull the gun trigger and the, and the bullet comes out the back of the gun. Like there's not, no, no other common everyday. In fact, the, here I'll do you one better goes connecting my issue. The dream machines work identically to the real life machines. All right. Right. So it is it is a really cool idea of like, you know, how do you yeah. avoid a limbo situation? How do you like if you're being uh, how, how do you know if you're in a dream or not? Ah, we have a totem thing and, and like you can't let anyone else touch it because if you do, then a fucking architect will copy it. And, you know, but yeah, the movie itself does plays a little fast and loose with that. And they also try to explain things like I think, you know, Mal's Mal's totem is mm. the one that uh, Cobb picks up at some point like he picks it up on the hotel room floor 
Um, and I'm right. not sure if that's the totem he's using now or if they both had two nearly identical top totems. Mm. Um, it seems to me like he's using her totem now, but what was he using during the dream world to indicate, uh, like when they went to limbo the first time, what, what yeah, was, what was his, his totem? I, I know there's a theory that, uh, like his, it was his wedding ring. Okay. Um, but I, I don't I've know, seen that I, I, like, Oh, every scene where he's wearing his wedding ring is a dream, which d- is true, which remains like, I think that's the, the best, some of the best evidence for the fact that, uh, you know, he's in a real world at the end of the movie. Because yeah. they're very that's that's they're, they they're inconsistent in some things, but uh, the one thing you can hang your hat on is yes, if he if if he's in a dream, he's got his wedding ring on. Uh, if he's not in a dream, if he's in the real world, he's not wearing a wedding ring. Um, and to defeat that, you have to essentially say the entire movie is a dream. Yeah, and I have seen a couple attempts to say that that like. Um, you know, like some of the alter. Do you want to get? Uh, do, do you want to talk more about the plot? Because like I also want. There's like a, I, I got a lot to talk about as far as far as like whether it's a dream or not, and like other common interpretations and stuff like that. What, where do you want to go with this? Yeah, I, I got tons of questions. Like, you know, an airplane um, as your real world state. What happens if you kick out of three three dream levels and a limbo level into an airplane that's experiencing massive turbulence? <laughs> like <laughs> yeah you get by a downdraft the aircraft loses 5,000 feet in 10 seconds right like, are you freaking out like oh god we're where sure. are we yeah because like you know again yosef would kick out but he's the dream host of everybody else so like what the shit you right know? especially saito who spent i don't know 40 years 50 years in the in limbo he kicks yeah. out and that plane is taking a nosedive and he's just losing his mind yeah yeah for sure for sure <laughs> Uh, what do you think about? Did you recognize uh, uh, Elon Musk's ex-wife uh, Tallulah Riley? I did. Yeah. Uh, I've only seen her in two things, and both times she's cast as a pneumatic sex object. Oh, you've seen her in some. You've <laughs> seen her in um, shit. What's I, that? Westworld and this is the only thing I can think of. No, it's it's the like eighteen hundreds um, love romantic love story thing. Jane. Austen, oh yeah, maybe. that movie. What? It, it might be a Jane Austen thing. Uh, huh. Pride and Prejudice. Okay. Oh, really? She's in that? Yeah. Yeah, she's oh, one okay. of the daughters. Well, then, okay. Well, you know, most of the female protagonists also some level sex objects. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess Fair. that's female protagonists uh, uh, up through until uh, very recent history. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was shocked to see, you know, because like I didn't know her from Adam. Uh, obviously, when right. I first saw this movie and since Westworld, that's like, yeah, she's immediately recognizable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other person I was surprised to see in this is Dean, the dog shooter from The Leftovers. Oh shit, you're right. He's the customs agent. He is. He is. He's played. He's played a lot of like uh, kind of FBI, CIA, police mm. officer types. But yeah, that's that's that. I, I knew he looked familiar, and I wasn't sure exactly where he was from. Yeah. The bulk of the, our previous podcast on, uh, you know. Blue Yonder 21 was you and I who had seen the movie twice trying to convince our uh, our former co-host Peter Street of the fact that the entire movie wasn't a dream which I think he was an adherent of until our conversation hmm. um, and it's funny because when I listened all three of us had not a complete understanding like all three of us made a serious pretty serious factual error uh, I can't remember what yours was but I know mine was I was denying that they hooked Sato up to a machine on the third level to get the limbo. I thought the only way you get the limbo is to die while you're sedated. But clearly, they even suggest, like in the in the text of the film, that like the way Mal and 
yeah. Dom got to Limbo was they just dreamed progressively deeper dream levels. Mm-hmm. So it does seem like there they is... They went for all uh, seven layers and they just got lost. Yeah. Uh, it does seem like that there is that 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 possibility. Uh, that's an ever-present danger. The deeper you go, you might, you might hit Limbo. Yeah, they um, talk about the unstable nature of it. But... Uh, I think that we, you and I both came across the idea that, because uh, the movie is constructed ambiguously. In fact, it's funny, because when I got to the halfway point of this movie, I started questioning my own, like, oh my God, isn't it going to be ironic that, like, on my fifth time through this movie, I become, like, it's all a dream believer? Uh-huh. Because there is stuff that, you know, uh, the fact that Mal is using someone else's totem, the fact that he never sees his children's face, the fact that, uh, you know, there's the very bizarre conversation that he has with their grandmother, you know, um, and like there's a whole bunch of things that kind of point in that direction. And then the final shot of the movie is the totem, the thing that Christopher Nolan has said most prominently, this is how you know what's real and what's not real. Mm. He spins it. And then he sees his children's face for the first time. And I think it's true to say that his character no longer cares if he's in a dream or reality. 100%. Him walking away from that totem is the point of that ending. Yes. Um, So he's at peace regardless. But us as an audience, our perspective pushes in and pushes in and pushes in on that that seemingly impervious top. Mm -hmm. And then just as it begins to wobble, we cut away. Yeah. I, I still regret to inform you that, that on my fifth time through, I still think that it's pretty airtight that the movie um, is that, that the movie does take place in, in the, the, the ending is real. Yeah. Um, and I, I fall into that camp too, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of uh, sort of wiggle room in the way the movie, in the language of the film. Like if you mm-hmm. look at that ending, the ending feels like a fucking dream, right? He's does, got yeah. everything he wanted. He's he's yep. dancing his way through customs. His mm-hmm. father his father is there to greet him with his children yep. who now turn around and show him his face. Like everything is going so perfectly for him. He's rid of sure. Mal and this constant mm-hmm. torture of the guilt of what he did. Mm-hmm. It just feels like a dream. And yet right. I I really do think that like the end of this, you're not even supposed to really be asking that question. I think yeah. The the bigger thing you're supposed to notice here is the emotional growth of the character. Yeah, it's a very sly ending because the, you say it's it's like a dream, but on the other hand, it's explicitly what the movie said was going to happen. And it's a, like he's yeah. going to do this job. This guy who's powerful enough to buy an airline on a whim uh, is going to pull some strings and get him through custom so he can go back and see his children. And there's a lot of things I think people falsely remember because like uh, contemporaneously, I know a lot of people said, well, the children were the same age and they're wearing the identical clothes throughout the entire movie. Um, this is this is indication it's a dream that no time has passed. Um, but Christopher Nolan himself said that's not true. Those the children that you don't see the faces of are actually different ages and are different actors. Mm. Uh, they are not wearing the same clothes, and he intended like the fact that like so so. Why do you think Leonardo wouldn't look at his children's face? I think it's almost like a totem kind of thing that he didn't want to lose. He didn't want to start losing his grip on reality the way that he started losing his grip with his wife. Okay. You know, the fact that whether she's dead or not, the fact that he can't like, he know, he's going to have even more psychic projections. And you started to see that anyway, because they started creeping up in the hotel room uh, or in the hotel lobby, various places in the dream. He started seeing his children too, but he wanted to, um, I don't know. It was almost like some toe, like, like, 
only he knew the reality of what his children looked like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't want to confuse that in any kind of dream state. Um, but that, I, I, again, I think the best, F, the best evidence, there's two pieces, lines of evidence. Number one, the presence of the wedding ring. Uh, yeah. is very consistent, very, very, very consistent. And some people try to dismiss that as like, that's not actually uh, a tell about whether he's dream or not. It's a tell about whether he has come to grips with his his wife's you know death or not. But like, even in the scene where he's in limbo with Sato and he's done with all that, he's still wearing his wedding ring. And mm-hmm. at the, you know, when he's going through customs and hugging his children, no wedding ring. But the other evidence is the presence or lack thereof of Mal. Like she is in literally every dream sequence in the damn movie. She is never seen in what is quote unquote the real world. So I think those two. Well, she's in the hotel scenes, which are flashbacks. Flashback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But never in like the she's never in the real world in a time where she would supposed to be dead and is is alive. Gotcha. So I think that those that and the wedding ring are to two kind of like ironclad. Um you know, evidences that this is, this is not, this is not a dream. Do you have any like evidence um, to the contrary? Because there's a whole bunch of other, not um, particularly. I I feel like the kid stuff, um, there, there are two major points of regret in his life. I think, um, yeah. one is, you know, kicking, uh, Ma out of the dream world and, and the way he did it and it driving her insane and her killing herself. That's one. Mm-hmm. Two, I think, is when he makes the decision to flee and leave his kids behind. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of one of the big drivers, too, and I, uh, of his guilt. And I think, like, at the end, he has both solved that problem because that's the one he can solve, right? And he's forgiven himself for the other. Um, sure. And, and ultimately, I, like, don't know if it matters if he's in a dream because... You know, that, that idea, like I'm I'm very open to the idea that you could live a perfectly great life in a dream world. And if you were never confronted with the idea that it wasn't a dream, uh, mm-hmm. there would be no difference effectively in living mm-hmm. that life versus living a life in the real world. Mm-hmm. And I think Don or Cobb buys into that, too. Right. Like at some point yeah. he's that's his constant battle. Like, is he going to give in to what the, the ideas that Mal had about the dream world being real and and blur those lines to the point where he can no longer tell the difference, um, or is he going to try to yeah. get back to the real world and stay there? Mm-hmm. At the end of the movie, I'm not sure that he cares. Right as he walks yeah. away from that that spinning top totem, mm-hmm. he's saying, "I've I am happy. Like I've gotten to the place where whether this is the real world or a dream, this is what I want, and mm-hmm. and I can be you know maybe a father to dream kids. I don't know, but." He he's gonna at least feel something more positive about himself and his life. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a great way to interpret that. Like, it, you know, kind of like to your point. Like, what does it matter if you're stuck in limbo? If you're with the woman you love, you have these godlike powers, et cetera, et cetera. Like he, uh, it's it's a conscious choice to no longer be tormented by the question of whether it's real or not. Like, you know, I've got yeah. my dad here. I got my presumably mom here. I got my children that love me. Um, I don't. I don't need the goddamn top to tell me that this is what I need to be happy. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you go, you know, like I said, it's like, uh, if you believe it's all a dream, then you've got essentially Neo going back to the pod. But like I said, I think there's a lot of evidence. Um, some of the other contemporary theories that I thought were interesting that I don't think ultimately hold up, but there's arguments you can make is there is interpretation that like, this is actually 
You're supposed to understand that Dom has been stuck in limbo, and this is his wife, Mal's, attempts to get him back. Okay. Like she's actually trying to incept in him the idea that he's not real so he can wake up and be with them. I don't... The, the biggest problem with that theory is that, like, Mal doesn't seem to be getting him to do the things that he would need to do to wake up. Mm-hmm. You'd have to understand that, like, Mal is, is, like, crystallized the idea of staying in the dream world so much that he's got things mixed up. Like, actually, death is what, you know puts you in the limbo instead of gets you out, you know, because she's always saying, stay here with me, not like, hey, let's let's blow each other's brains out of me. She only does that when she's in the the quote unquote real world. Right. Um, the other theory that I think is very interesting, very interesting. In fact, I don't even know what disproves it. It's just like is the fact that um, Dom has been stuck in limbo for years and years and years. And Ariadne is his grown daughter attempting to exfiltrate him and this actually holds up a lot because you know back if you think about when he goes and and ultimately failing because she's then a child in his dream at the end of this movie yeah that's what i'm saying like i I, I can't remember exactly what falls apart but the things that the, the evidence for that other than the fact that her you know uh someone he trusts his father is the one that suggests this person out of all the persons in the world to work with and the fact that like when Mal sees her, she doesn't say, like, who the hell is this? It's, why did you bring her here? What is she doing here? Almost as if she recognizes who Ariadne is and is offended that, you know, Mal has, the the, the Dom has brought, uh, and, you know, that would, you know, possibly be if she recognizes her daughter in some aspect of that. But I thought that was a really interesting theory that was like, uh, um, you know, kind of popular at the time. And then, of course, we've already discussed the theory that this was just all a metaphor for getting, you know, a project through Hollywood and sure. how fraught with danger and how you can lose yourself in the project. Uh, and you can lose what's track, what's real and what's important to you and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you look around at all the different people. Um, but, but we said, like, that's where the artist, in this case, Nolan, was using his experience as a you know, working on, on, on a, on a movie, uh, to inform like what it would be like to work on any other project, complicated project. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I thought some of those alternate, like kind of like understandings and stuff are, are interesting to play with, but ultimately not as satisfying and, uh, comprehensive as just what I think takes place on the screen. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm all meant to be kind of being a sucker, being a sap, Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to endings, I like positive endings. I like uplifting endings, um, you know, I like the occasional downbeat ending for sure, but yeah, sure, the vast majority of films I see, I want, I want some uplifting message, uh, a, a, or a moment of hope or something like at the end of them. Like I, I want to feel good coming out of this movie. You know, I don't think I'm alone in that. That's kind of what Hollywood's mm-hmm. built on. So, yeah, I, I see it as him getting out to the real world. Did you think that Sato at the end, like there's a couple of things I thought were funny on my, you know, fifth or sixth watch of this thing is like, imagine you're Robert Fisher and you wake up and you've been asleep for 10 hours and you're about to land and you look up and everyone in first class has got this supremely smug back slapping effect to them. Uh, like, what the hell did, what did you guys do? Like sharp, like did I get a boner and you guys unzip my pants and sharpie it. Like, why, why are you guys so smug? And it's all kind of vaguely directed at me or around to me. Mm-hmm. Um, also, 
I think Leonardo DiCaprio crushed the feeling of a guy who might have been in limbo for longer than he wanted to in in Sato's deal. Because, you know, we talked about this on the the Dreamcast is that I think they did a little light aging of DiCaprio to suggest that he might have spent a a couple years down in in Sato's limbo with him. Um, But Sato did not seem like a man who, for the very first time ever you know, as a tourist on this operation and who has not a lot of experience with like this kind of dream stuff as a man who woke up and like, holy shit, I was an old ass man. I lived 50 years down in this place. What the fuck? It's it's like uh, he immediately woke up and remembered. Oh, shit. I mean, imagine like if I asked you to do me a favor, uh-huh. right? Like, hey, hey, Jim, uh, before you log off today, could you take a look at that ad copy and uh, forward it to so and so? And then you get in a coma for 50 fucking years, <laughs> except for it's not a coma. It's a coma right. where you're like in a matrix thing where you're just living your entire life and you wake up in that. And the first thing you do is like, shit, I got to fucking get to that email to era like <laughs> he wakes yeah. up the first thing after going through all that and blowing his brains out as an old man is like shit i gotta make this phone call before we are wheels down oh yeah no it's <laughs> wild actually that's where i have like the the biggest problem with this movie is uh-huh. when he comes to how does saito know that the plan succeeded man to, know to that's make that thing. phone call because all he gets is a glance from from Cobb, right yeah and also the idea of like how the hell do you like because people change their minds too like, you know, uh, he, he has uh, he has this profound dream experience and he's resolving that, like, I'm going to dissolve the company. I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. Mm, but like, yeah, yeah. how do you know the effect hap- will linger long enough for it to actually? Yeah. Happen? Like, it's not like he's going to land and like sign paperwork to dissolve the company. Right. Yeah. Uh, like he'd have to probably go through months of things and then like at it's like. You know, and and is his uncle going to be like, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, what have all of his friends and associates have to say? Like, yeah, like even if even if Matt, even if Dom and his crew succeed, what does that even mean and look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess you're supposed to you're, you're supposed to understand the idea that, like, if you incept something this well and this deep, it's like an, it's an. But that's interesting, too, because also it's a pretty villainous act. They've swindled this guy out of his company. Mm hmm. You know, like like oh, it, yeah. this is just as immoral as like Godfather. Your signature is going on this contract, or your brains are. Mm-hmm. You know, wh- like this this is Luca Brasi shit. It just happens all in the dream the dreamscape. Oh um, yeah, and they've they've effectively also created, you know, cemented Saito as like a god among men in his industry, right? Yeah, he is. He's like Elon Musk on in limbo level as far as his power levels. And I keep on thinking of like, you know, like uh, Ocean's Eleven works because the guy, Andy Garcia, is a shitbag. Sure. He's a bad guy. He's a gangster. He hurts people. He kills people. He he does a lot of illegal stuff. So it's like, you know, you're stealing from a crook, uh, a right. murderous crook at that. Cillian Murphy's very, very sympathetic in this movie. I think so. This yeah. poor guy has been abused and neglected by his, his dad and, you know, uh, trying to do what's right. And they go in there and mind fuck him. And, you know, I guess it's cool because Leonardo DiCaprio gets his kids back <laughs> right. <laughs> by doing the same thing that caused his wife to commit suicide. You know, yeah. like the moral, <laughs> the moral, the morality of the movie is is a little, little, I, I need to be incepted on to like, you know, thinking that, 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 that Dom is a good guy here. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I don't know. You're not supposed to feel sorry for Cillian Murphy. No, I mean, he's not the protagonist, right? Or at least not the main protagonist. 
He's really good at playing haunted and wounded, though. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I kept you know, t- waiting for him to turn into Scarecrow, and every time they put a yeah. bag over his head, I'm like, oh, this is the moment, right? Like, they drip oils on his bag, and I'm like, okay, uh-huh. he's a Scarecrow now. Yeah, yeah, because he's already wearing a Scarecrow. He's like a, a, <laughs> right. a slightly deluxe, uh, uh, you know, ma- major brand version of the Scarecrow mask. Uh-huh. It looks like a very nice mask. He's not a burlap bag, but yeah. Yeah, he's going to come out of there in Batman <laughs> mode. <laughs> uh, what else we got to say about this? Uh, I don't have a lot more to say about this movie that I haven't already said in the previous Inception Dreamcast that we did. Uh, if you want to hear about the plot minutia um, and, you know, how all these things line up exactly and the levels and stuff, go listen to that one because I think it still holds up. But, yeah, I, I came away from this movie appreciating it on a much more meta level. Like, look at the construction of this mm-hmm. thing. It's mind boggling to keep everything straight and tie everything so perfectly together both on an emotional and plot level, Christopher yeah. Nolan's a master. And and this movie's like what an hour and a half, maybe an hour or two, two, two and a half, two hours, forty minutes. But mm-hmm. I challenge you to take a minute out of it. Yeah, no, it's it's streamlined. Like too. like as stuffed as it is, this is actually a Jenga board that's had almost all of the pieces that you can safely remove, remove from it because like yeah. you know, uh, and it's funny because like. I think it's a universal experience the first time you watch it that you don't really get 100% of it because I think yeah. it is like, you know, he could have used a few more of those Jenga blocks putting back on the bottom and maybe some belabored some of these concepts. But he told you everything you need to know to understand what's going on on an intuitive level. And then you can fill those gaps in if you like it and you you want to rewatch. It makes it more rewarding. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, it's it's an incredibly tight film, I think. And it's it's funny because like this is... um. I love Dan Harmon. Dan Harmon loves the bitch about this movie. Not in any, not never in any kind of specifics. Okay. More of just like, oh, look at this asshole. Takes an hour to explain how his movie works before he can get around to executing the plot of it. But that's why it works so well. Just making shit up and all that stuff is. But yeah, yeah he's you know, defining Dan, the rules. He's defining the parameters, and then he's yeah. working within those in really interesting ways. I don't yeah. know. It works for me. Yeah, no, it it works for me too. Um, I I'd, I'd say it's just naked jealousy, except for like you know Dan does also respect other like the, he's like super in love with like what the was it Skyler Brothers that did uh uh the, 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 the Stranger Things. It's not Skyler Duffer Brothers. Yeah, Duffer Brothers. Well, that'll about wrap us up for Inception this week. Uh, well, I guess if you still want another hour and a half of discussion, I will link the. Uh, direct link to Blue Yonder number 21 if you want to hear three guys 10 years ago uh, you know a bunch of idiots talking about Inception for another hour and a half it's it's there for you if you, if you want the full three hour bald move Inception experience for the 10th anniversary and who the hell wouldn't honestly uh, next week we have another anniversary it's the 25th anniversary of Kevin Costner's Waterworld oh fuck yeah a movie that seemed much more ridiculous 25 years ago than it does in 2020 yeah uh I've only seen that movie once. Uh, I'm I, I I I'm I'm excited to see how it's aged, um, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's probably going to be a ridiculous thing, uh, but there you go. Uh, we'll be watching Waterworld next week. If you want to join us, uh, check it out on your fra- favorite streaming site. Rent it on Amazon. Uh, pull it off your Blu-ray. I'm sure everyone's got the Criterion version oh, at yeah. home. Mm-hmm. Pop that in. Pop it in your laser disc and uh, really geek out on it. But that's what we're doing next week. Uh, until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya. <laughs>